This is episode 38 of Ripe Good Scholar. Venus, Adonis, and Ovid. Yeah, Adonis's horse runs off with another horse. I, I hope this does not feed into the eroticism. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Shakespeare invented uh, internet stuff. <laughs> Hi, this is Jeremy Dubin of the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company and co-host of The Good, The Bard, and The Ugly, and you are listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. During his school days, Shakespeare was studying the Latin classics, including one that would be a favorite in his life as a playwright, Ovid. Shakespeare adapted a story from Ovid into his best-selling poem, Venus and Adonis. While we are very familiar with Shakespeare adapting other works, readers may be surprised to notice such a stark difference between the two tellings. That is why, today, Eli and I will be examining the story in both Ovid and Shakespeare to find the differences and identify a few surprising similarities. For this episode, I read Charles Martin's translation of Ovid's Metamorphosis, along with Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis, and several articles. If you want to check out those and so much more, head on over to ripegoodscholar.com ep38. Now... Let's head to ancient Rome. The day has finally come. Oh? For us to discuss Ovid. Ooh. Everyone's favorite Latin poet. I know he is definitely my favorite Latin poet in that I know his name. Today, what we're going to focus on is Shakespeare's poem, Venus and Adonis. Okay. Which was adapted from Ovid's Metamorphoses, where he told the story of Venus and Adonis. Right. That makes sense because it's called Venus and Adonis. As I was reading my translation, which was just a translation by Charles Martin, there's like little breaks between the story. So book 10 is a whole lot of stories. And we'll get into a little more of the setup for Venus and Adonis, but it's like a Venus and Adonis part one. And then like in that story, Venus goes into another story and then we come back to Venus and Adonis. So it's kind of broken up. Okay. So what I'm hearing is Ovid was very long winded and could not stick to one plot. Kind of. Let's Although, put Ovid oddly, on blast. Let, let's put him on blast right well, now. Well, I'm just saying, for Venus and Adonis, Shakespeare was definitely the more long-winded one. Like, by a lot. Oh, yeah? And he didn't even include the random story in the middle of it. Ooh. Putting Willie on blast. But we're not there yet. First, we're going to talk about where Shakespeare would have first been introduced to Ovid and specifically Ovid's Metamorphoses. As we'll remember from our grammar school episode that Shakespeare in his grammar school education would have studied the Latin classics and some of the Greek classics. Yes. We know that specifically Ovid's Metamorphoses was included in this curriculum because Cardinal Wolsey 
added it to the curriculum during the reign of Henry VIII. Well, there you go. What we have to remember when we're conceptualizing how familiar Shakespeare would have been with these classics is that the grammar school students would have translated it from Latin to English and back again, probably memorized passages, and then in the later years attempt to imitate Ovid's writing style. Now, it's funny that they translated that to uh, English and back again because, you know, I'm just imagining that as very early babblefish mucking around. This actually just occurred to me. My roommate in college studied Latin and actually a little Greek. She had a little Latin and less Greek. But that's a lot of what they did. They would translate something to English and back. Interesting. I think it was to help understand the nuances. Now, I don't think it was necessarily like, I translate a sentence into English and then I translate that sentence I just wrote back into Latin because like, you know, the original Latin translation, you can just be like, I did it perfect. But I think it was translating back and forth in order to get the nuances of Latin. Because from what I understand of Latin, which is very, very little, there were the same word could have different meanings depending on like the placement in the sentence or the greater context and things like that. So that's where when we are looking at translations, and this is a point I will circle back to in a little bit, that's why there's so many different translations of Latin texts. You know, like if it was super straightforward, we would have one translation of Ovid and redoing it would be nonsensical. I think even modern translations into modern languages have very similar issues. Mm -hmm. And there are people alive who speak those languages naturally. For more information on what the grammar school education would have been like, definitely go back to our Elizabethan grammar school episode. We go much more into depth of what it would have been like. But I think that as we're talking about Shakespeare adapting Ovid, and when we talk about him sourcing from Ovid, Plutarch, and just other general mythological references that he makes in his plays, he was very very familiar with these intimately familiar with mythology and with the latin classics yeah i I think that's quite clear there's references he makes that you and i both tore apart mythology books that were far exceeding our reading level when we were children and a lot of what he has in his pocket just goes right over our head well and even even venus and adonis i had never heard of that so shakespeare not only would have been familiar with it from his grammar school education but there was a very popular translation of ovid's metamorphosis published in 1567 that was done by arthur golding and as Beatrice Subri Velasco put it in, I'm assuming her publication on Ovid and Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis, a study of sexual role reversal, which I will have linked in the show notes. She, in her essay, said, Golding was a moralist, and his interpretation of Ovid's poem assumed that metamorphosis was a punishment for sexual unnaturalness. So I think what's interesting about that is, like, in my translation I read, it was it was pretty straightforward, which kind of makes me wonder if this Arthur Golding kind of inserted his feelings on the subject into his quote-unquote translation. That doesn't sound like Elizabethan writers at all. In a lot of the research I was doing, they just kind of referenced that he probably used this version. My guess is Shakespeare used bits of that specific translation 
in his work that makes us think that's what he used. I didn't read that version. One, I found out about it after I had already listened to my version. It's an interesting perspective to keep in mind as we talk about how Shakespeare explores love and sexuality in his poem, which is kind of one of the last things we'll touch on. Yeah, that makes sense. Like if the version he read was really tinged by this kind of moral prudishness over the sexuality expressed in the original poem and, you know, reading it as through a very Christian lens. It makes sense that that sort of lens would influence his perspective on the poem and how he wrote it. I think that would make sense. I think, again, we have to keep in mind that he was also familiar with the original. True. So he would have had some idea of where perhaps Golding had his own influence. Writers in the 1590s would frequently take a classic and make it into their own poetic work, typically classified as a minor epic. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. People still do that today. What kind of stuck out to me about that was it being popular at the time when Shakespeare was writing it, because if it was popular, Shakespeare did it. <laughs> Shakespeare followed trends. I think the Folger Shakespeare Library on their short article on Venus and Adonis really helped break down what the genre meant and why Shakespeare's poem was a good example of that. So the genre is a marginal one. It's characters usually drawn from the periphery of mythology or legendary history. Its interest is not in the matters of state that inform major epics, but in eroticism, sophistication, and verbal wit. Ooh. I know. Venus and Adonis is also true to the conventions of the minor epic in featuring an elaborate digression from its main plot, which we'll get to, but they go on a whole spiel about the horses. The horses? Yeah. Adonis's horse runs off with another horse. I, I hope this does not feed into the eroticism. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Shakespeare invented uh, internet stuff. <laughs> As we were talking about before, you know, Shakespeare definitely hopped on trends that were popular, but in particularly this case, that worked out for him. Yeah? Venus and Adonis is easily his most popular publication. Really? It went through 10 editions between 1593 to 1616. What? Yeah. Oh, wow. Which we have to keep in mind from our first folio episode that they printed as much as they were going to sell. Like, they printed a few hundred copies. Once those sold, they printed another round. He sold out ten times? Yes. Now I think it's important that we break down the difference between Ovid's Venus and Adonis and Shakespeare's, which is pretty significant. Yeah? The very basic, very basic plot points are the same. But one thing that I do want to keep in mind as we notice how different the version how different Shakespeare is from the original. And we saw something similar with Plutarch and Antony and Cleopatra is that this is an example where the original would have been in Latin. So the translation, if Shakespeare was even working off a translation, it was a different translation than what we're probably working off of. And that may influence how similar it is. For example, Hollandshed, it's there. Sometimes it's like word for word. Well, 
was the 1567 translation were there more elements than in my 2004 version. We'll start with Ovid since he's the source. The story of Venus and Adonis occurs during book 10 of Metamorphosis. Gotcha. From what I understood, because I didn't read the entire chapter, because the entire book because it's a lot and there's like 53 different mini myths in there. But my understanding is Venus and Adonis is being told as a part of a story that Orpheus is telling to the trees and wild animals after losing Eurydice. Ovid does not go for half measures, does he? No. Prior to Venus and Adonis is the story of Adonis's mother, Mira. So, and I mean, that covers like up to his birth. Again, for our purposes, not important because by the time Shakespeare kind of jumps in on the story, Adonis is a grown man and almost about to die. Gotcha. But we want to keep these kind of deviations in mind as we talk about stylistically where Shakespeare may be similar to Ovid. It starts with kind of how Venus fell in love with Adonis because it wasn't just like, ooh, he pretty. Her son Cupid was giving her a kiss. And as he did so, his arrow pierced her. And she was like, shh, ouchie. And didn't realize how deep the wound actually went and fell in love with, madly in love with Adonis because of Cupid's arrow. Well, Cupid, you got, you've got to be more careful with that. Although now that I say that out loud, I realize the whole idea is that you're not. So she comes down to earth to be with Adonis and he's much more accepting toward it in Ovid. Like in Shakespeare, he's very like, you go away. But in Ovid, you know, he talks about how they're hunting partners. Like she kind of gives up all her godly duties to like run around in the woods with Adonis and hunt. Don't you hate it when a girl starts dating a guy and she just gives up her whole personality to do what he likes. Ugh. Tale as old as time. But Venus prefers him hunting deer and foxes and rabbits and doesn't really like him going after the dangerous animals like wild boar and lions. Ah. So at some point, Venus decides to tell him the story of Atlanta and Hipponymes. Um, Atlanta is the woman who could run really fast and... Yeah, three golden apples and such. Yeah, I suppose it was supposed to teach Adonis some sort of lesson, but for our purposes, it's not that important because Shakespeare doesn't even bother with it, which is rare for Shakespeare. He usually enjoys a good rando scene. You're throwing a lot of shade at Willy Boy. Oh, come on. Do you remember like in Antony and Cleopatra when I was like, what is this weird scene about the ominous drumming or music or whatever? And then I was like, oh, it's in Pluto. That's why. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And that's just the first example that came to the top of my head. He didn't write tight plots. And Ovid, Adonis doesn't listen, hunts a boar, gets stabbed in the groin. Oh no, that's Venus's favorite part. Well, Ovid said, well, at least the translation I read said his privates. I assume it was the groin. That new translation needs to grow some privates. <laughs> Now, in this story, Venus was kind of like flying away on her swans to, I don't know, look over Cyprus or something. <laughs> as, as you do. And here, I think here's him dying and like turns back, comes upon him dying, and then his blood becomes a flower. Flower boys. Flower boys. That's Ovid. Now we'll get to Shakespeare. I feel like I'm not ready. Because that seems like a pretty simple story with one digression about uh, the Apple Girl. But you have to remember with Ovid, this is a digression within a story being told by a different person 
following a story about his birth. I'm not saying that Ovid is, you know, a concise writer. I'm just saying that, you know, that's for Ovid, that's a pretty tight story. I know, I was surprised too. So anyway, in Shakespeare, Adonis is a beautiful youth. He, in his beauty, has no interest in love, just hunting. Yeah. His beauty caught the eye of Venus, who became, like, obsessed with him. And honestly, I think this is where, while Shakespeare doesn't say that, like, she was struck by Cupid's arrow, she very much acts like it. Yeah? Totally obsessed. When she's described, it's almost like a predator going after some prey. Ooh. She is on him. So I think that's where, if he didn't intend it, that's where that kind of influence came in, where he was like, oh, what is Venus is thinking? Well, she was totally obsessed in love with him. Well, it's because she was struck by Cupid's arrow. We just didn't say that. That's interesting. It's another example of Shakespeare very much looking at the interior lives of his characters. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's definitely way more interested in their in her, her specific mental state than Ovid was at all. Anyway, Venus catches Adonis and essentially kidnaps him. Oh. Pins him down, covers him in kisses. Not only does she pin him down, but she makes him listen to her super duper long tirades about love and why he should love her and why they should make love and on and on and on and on and on. Like for pages. She will go on and on and on. Um, there's one point where he almost gets away, but um, suddenly his horse breaks free and runs off because it's chasing a beautiful mare. And wait for it. At first... The wild mare resists the stallion, but eventually she gives in. So we've got some uh, dubious consent horse porn from Willie. Yes, but I think the, <laughs> the greater point being for Venus's argument is that like, look, look how she tried to resist, but ultimately gave in to love. So he continues to try to leave and reject her and is frankly kind of mean. And I'm like, that's daring, sir. Do you know what Venus does to people? Yeah. People she loves? Gotta be honest. (laughs) She does not have a reputation for being kind to anyone she loves, hates, or feels slightly jealous of. As he is particularly mean, she passes out. And he's like, oh no, I killed her. She passes out? Yes. The goddess? Yes. Why? I don't know. Her feelings are hurt her heart is broken i don't know because it was convenient for the plot all right so he tried to wake her up first by like shaking her and like you know like oh, wake up then he slapped her and that didn't <laughs> work <laughs> what how, what should what should i do <laughs> bam <laughs> i think i killed her bam 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 and then he finally kisses her and that wakes her up what i i did not see that coming and then totally she's like latches around him and wants all the kisses and is like ah yes so many give me all the kisses and he's like what before you just wanted one kiss and she's like shh all the kisses (laughs) and then she's like I want to see you again when can I see you again and he's like well you can't tomorrow I'm going to be hunting a boar and when he says that she's like (gasps) no I just had a vision of you dying the boy is going to kill you. And of course that takes her like page and a half, two pages. Mm. She goes into detail of exactly what's going to happen. And he, instead of listening to the literal goddess 
that just told him he will die tomorrow if he hunts this boar. Lectures her on the difference between love and lust and then leaves. Interesting way to go about it before you get Robert baratheon Yeah, so then she's like running frantic around the woods, like looking for him the next day. And she hears the hounds and she's like, oh no, oh no, oh no. And she's like running and she's like cursing death. And then she thinks he's alive. So she's like, just kidding, death. You're the best. And then, oops, now he is dead. And then she weeps and says, from now on, human love will also be mixed with pain and sorrow. Rude. I know, right? Rude, Venus. We had it rough enough. (laughs) And then his blood turns into a flower. So anyway, that's Shakespeare's. And that's a very brief summary, mostly because I did not summarize everything Venus said. It seems like, and this is me guessing, but do you think this sold so well because it got hot and heavy? On Venus's front? I kind of do. Yeah. So the first time I listened to it, I was like, I feel like I'm reading, you know, like one of those like Fabio paperback beach novels that like, yeah. you know, that are you literally just read because they're sexy. If we were to categorize it today, it would have been kind of in the, the romance erotica kind of. I think so. But anyway, so as you can see, plot's not really all that similar. Adonis gets mauled by a boar and his blood turns into a flower in both. That's about it. Yeah, it seems like in Ovid they had a relationship of kinds. But then Ovid came before the popularity of sonnets in England which were frequently about unrequited love. I think that's a good point because a couple different sources that I read brought up similar points, not necessarily about the sonnets, but about where Shakespeare's focus was not the same as Ovid's. For example, Velasco said, Shakespeare, however, seems more interested in the lover's mental state. Which is kind of how he writes. If there's one thing about him that he did well, it was conveying... A mental state. He would steal plots, he would steal good lines, he would recklessly write himself into a corner and not bother really working hard to get himself out of it. But he conveyed emotions incredibly well, so well that we're still performing his plays today. Velasco, in her essay, it's specifically about sexual role reversal. And multiple sources brought this up, but Venus is the pursuer. And the woman is the pursuer and the man is the pursuit. And Adonis is described in terms of his beauty, whereas Venus is hardly described physically at all. That's a really interesting point. I I think actually an article on the Sailor Foundation put it very well. Shakespeare reworks Ovid's basic story of Venus and Adonis into a far more complicated poem that explores the nature of love and sexual desire. And I think that's what you see. He was much more interested in how the characters behaved and what happened when you had a woman in power fanatically pursuing a man. It also seems like by making it a powerful woman who's pursuing a man, she was able to get more physical in her pursuit without losing the reader. And that allowed for more titillation. You know, and he didn't draw so much attention to the fact that like she's more powerful than he is except for the fact that she could like pin him down and keep him there but that's something that to me seems kind of natural to be at the back of people's minds you know like where i was saying where adonis was kind of mean to her i was like you know what she does to people right everybody's familiar with venus to be fair to adonis uh if you know a whirlwind told you it loved you i'd be a little concerned and 
Venus is at that level. I agree. I'd be concerned, but he he's not just like, oh, no, don't, no, no. Trying to be nice about it. Like, he's like, no, you're terrible, and I don't want anything to do with you, and I'm going to go hunting. And she's like, you're going to die. And he's like, well, that's too bad for me then, isn't it? Madam, learn to take a no. One last thing I want to touch on is taking note of where Shakespeare borrowed from not just Ovid, but the other Latin masters he would have studied. While Ovid takes digression to a new level in his works, we still have Shakespeare using a side story to emphasize the lesson being learned. You had the horses. We see it happen, and then Venus explains to us why it's important to her argument. Gotcha. Which I think is very Ovid-like. That digression, that kind of sidestep, serves the bigger purpose. Telling the story of the apples. Then telling the story of why that story matters. There was a critic in 1598 that said, The sweet, witty soul of Ovid lives in the mellifluous and honey-tongued Shakespeare. Ooh. People of Elizabethan England would have seen a similarity between how Shakespeare wrote and how Ovid wrote that maybe is hard for us to see as people unfamiliar with, like, the Latin version. We can only get so close with the translation to his writing style that, you know, particularly critics would have certainly gotten to grammar school, if not beyond. Props to you, Willie. But I think also, not necessarily from Ovid, but from his general Latin education, Shakespeare would have learned the art of rhetoric, the art of argument, and he puts that to use with Venus. Um, the Folger article put it best when it said, Shakespeare makes his Venus highly verbal, a seemingly endless source of arguments for making love. So I think, uh, if anything, while maybe not a great example of an adaptation, Venus and Adonis is an excellent example of Shakespeare's grammar school education at work. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com EP38 for even more information on Ovid and Venus and Adonis. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember... Our court shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art. <laughs>